through a lot of Easter's, right? There's a lot going on, especially this weekend, Railroad Festival hangover, all those things that are just beating us down. I got in the shower last night and realized how sunburnt my head was and just knew this week's going to be miserable. But you know, as we were singing those songs, singing what he's done and, and, and worshiping in the fact that there's promises that we carry because of the life that Christ lived, the death that Christ died, and the resurrection that Christ made. And so this morning, you know, we're going to kind of celebrate something that historically the church has celebrated around this time for a very long time. But what I hope is, as I hope that every opportunity we have to stand in the presence of the creator of the universe, that we would not let these moments pass without truly understanding and seeing what it is that today means for us. Because you know, get dressed, come to church, you know, do this whole thing. Yeah, that's part of it. But there's something that this means for us so much deeper than anything that we could represent, or that we could even say. And that's in knowing and understanding what Christ has done. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning as we dive into one of my favorite sections of the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2. I believe Paul's greatest heart and intention in those moments as he's writing this letter to this church is to let them know and remind them, like, this is why we do it. This is why we are who we are. This is how we navigate that space. And so I just want to pray for us really quickly before we get into God's word this morning and just ask God to speak to us. And I, I just ask that you wouldn't just listen to me pray, but you would pray for yourself and just ask God to reveal to you, God, show me something. God, show me areas in my life where I'm missing enjoying the beauty and the fullness of life that you've offered to me. God, that I'm missing the mark on, on what it means to follow you in obedience and lead my family in obedience or step into the spaces of influence God has given you in obedience. And, and for all, all of us, as we come into this room this morning with sin, with issues, with struggles, with doubts, with fears, that we know that the God of the universe is dwelling among us to shoulder those things to engage with us in regards to those things. And so I just want us to pray, if we could, seeking after God this morning, coming with humble hearts, laying down our, 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 our sin, uh, laying down our burdens, and just hearing from Him. Because He's got such a, such a truth for us today from His Word that aren't my words, but His. And I pray that we could just lean into that together. So let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much. God, we thank you for the opportunity you give us to come and to sing your praises and to worship you, Lord. We are so unworthy. God, we are so unworthy. But God, we greatly thank you for the hope that we sing about. God, for the, for the instruction that you offer us in our times of struggle and doubt and fear and hurt. Father, I just pray that we would just open our hearts and minds to you. God, let us hear from you. God, let me hear from you. God, let us just all lean into what it is you have for us. God, eliminate our distractions. Eliminate any shame that may tell us that this message isn't for us. God, eliminate any pride that may tell us we don't need it. Father, God, let us hear from you. Let us see you and know you in a special way. God, we love you. God, we thank you and praise you in your holy and precious name. So like I said this morning, you know, historically as the church, we have celebrated this moment for a long time. 
And the thing is about this, you know, this is the single most, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we're talking about the single most vital moment, important moment in human history for humanity, for humankind, in what Christ has done for us and what he has done. I mean, Paul even references this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. So he's acknowledging the most vital element of our faith that we acknowledge is the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus has not resurrected, then all of it is meaningless. But the beautiful thing about it, Christian, non-Christian writers alike have written about you know, the, 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 the thing about even when the New Testament is written, it's written within 150 years of when Jesus had risen. And there are writings. There would have been people within a generation of a set of people who would have witnessed. The Bible says that there are tons of people, over hundreds of people that witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And then those people, some of those people would have still been alive when the New Testament books were scribed and written. So there's just so much proof and evidence to tell us that the resurrection is true. And so even if we believe that the resurrection is true, and we should because our, our, our faith pivots on that moment, have we truly for ourselves embraced what that means for us? You know, C.S. Lewis, I reference him a lot, but he wrote this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Either it's untrue in which case it's no, of no importance. Or it's true, and in which case it demands our whole life. There's no space, and I love how he's saying that. And, and, and Paul telling us that even when he's talking about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians, he says, it's, it can't be. It's, not, if it's either the most important thing to us, or it needs to be the most vital element of our life, the most sustaining element of our life, or it's nothing. There's no place for it to be moderately important. There's no place for it to just be a, 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 a something that comes around occasionally. It's, it's not just something we reference when we're hurting. It's not just something that we reference whenever things aren't going our way or we need something for our family or something for a loved one. And so for us, when we truly mentally and spiritually engage with and consider this moment, the resurrection of Jesus... And its implication for our lives, we can't take it lightly. We can't afford to. Not because of some checklist. Not because of some religious expectation or duty. I'm not, I'm not speaking to us on that level. But I'm talking about the desire that we have and need. The direction that we need. The love that we need to experience. The mercy that we desperately need that we'll talk about this morning. Because of what God do, has done for us, it means what, you know, for us to understand what it means for our past, what it means for our present, and what it intends and means for our future. You know, because when we read words like John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. In verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so the question for us is, what does this truly mean? Like, what was God intending to do? What does is, what is the resurrection imply for my life? And what does it mean for us? Because the resurrection is, is a moment that we need to understand. Because when Jesus died on the cross, what it did is it revealed something to the people. 
okay, this is different. This is different. So the, resur- the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus revealed something. But what the resurrection did is it sealed it. The resurrection sealed it. And so there's three things that I want us to see this morning that I, I hope that we can engage with to understand what the resurrection means for us. What does the resurrection truly mean for me? What does it mean for you? And why do we even take the time to celebrate this in this way? So the first thing I want to talk about is the requirements for resurrection. And I know when I say requirements, we immediately go to this, this checklist of do's and don'ts in religious space. That's the, the easiest, most measurable thing for us. But I want us to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And this is going to kind of lay out the groundwork for what I believe Christ intends for us. What Paul is writing to this church and he's telling them, the Apostle Paul is telling them, this is what the resurrection means for you. And I believe that he starts here with some requirements for resurrection. And so if you're turned or if you can read with me to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1 and it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what is the first requirement of resurrection? And I need us to understand this because it's not that you do something, right? It's not that you accomplish a task, but it's that we have an understanding of something. And what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1? He says, and you were dead. Resurrection requires their first to be death, right? And so he's telling us, he's telling the people here, he tells them the previous status, he's talking to a group of believers, he's writing this letter to the church, but he's wanting them to understand that the state of living that they were in was not living. That resurrection requires something and it requires death. And so when we're talking about this, we're not talking about physical resurrection at this moment. He's talking about spiritual death. And so when we talk about spiritual death, what are we referencing? To be spiritually dead means to be destitute or absent of a life that recognizes and is devoted to God. It is inactive in respects to doing right, inactive, inoperative, and powerless. It is absent of the Spirit of God. So he says, and you were dead. You were destitute of a desire for God. The Bible tells us that none was righteous, no, not one, that none does good, that none seeks after. In our inability to desire God because of the destitute state of how we live, he tells us that we were dead. And so what we need to understand is that dead people don't do anything, right? So the first requirement of the resurrection of Jesus to mean anything for us is to understand the fact That without Christ, we were spiritually dead. That the Spirit of God was not working. That the offerings of the Creator of the universe were not there for us because we did not want it. We did not seek it. We did not have it. And so it's not a question of if we were dead or if we are dead, but a fact of what is. He says the first requirement of resurrection is that you were dead. And then he continues on and he begins to kind of let us know what instigated our death. What has instigated that spirit, that status of spiritual death? We didn't become dead, we were dead. We were dead. And he tells us 
that the things that instigated our death were trespasses and sin. So what are trespasses? Trespasses describes this built-in corruption and alienation from God. It also describes a slipping away or a falling away or a step of error. Being in a place that we shouldn't be. You know, because somebody trespasses on our lawn, they're in a space they're not supposed to be, right? And not only that, but he talks about sin. And sin is the nature to rebel, to do wrong, to choose self. And so he tells us what instigated our death was trespasses, our corruption, our misstep, and then our sin, the nature to rebel, to do wrong, to choose self, to choose what I want. Because that's, that's what's built into us from birth, right? I mean, we can see this from babies and kids. Like, the focus is self. The, the, the selflessness is taught. Most people aren't born selfless. If you, if you raised selfless babies, then good for you. But most babies and most children, toddlers, as they grow, they do what they want. When they want it, it's mine, right? Mine, mine, mine. That's the first thing most of them learn. No, right? And so he's telling us these, in, the, these things that instigated our death. Like we said, and we're not talking about becoming dead. That we came into this world inheriting, because of what the Bible tells us, inheriting this death. Inheriting these trespasses, inheriting these sins, the sinful nature. That this disease instigated our spiritual death from birth and we can't avoid it. Psalm 51.5, David says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, or brought forth in trespasses, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so then he continues on. In verse 2, after he says that you were dead, spiritually dead, in your trespasses and sins, he begins to talk about the place at which, the direction at which we were going. And he says that in which you once walked following the course of this world. So not only is he telling us about what instigated our death, but then he begins to communicate what is the evidence of our death, which is the requirements for resurrection is to see and evaluate the evidence of death. And what does he say were the evidence of death, of our, or our dead state? He says that the dead, the spiritually dead, does not, is not because of sinful acts that have been committed, but because of the nature we were born into. And it's not just that we were there, but we walked in it. All of us, as we began to live this life and function in this life at which... God has created us to live in, our choices, our guidance, our walking was not according to God's guidance, was not according to what God was giving us or leading us, because why? Because we were destitute or absent of a desire to seek after God, so we were following something else. And he tells us that we were not only walking, but we were following, we were being led by something. And he tells us very clearly that we were following the course of this world. Now when the Bible says this, when the Bible uses this language, it's talking about a world system. The way a world functions. The world separate from God. Because the world functions differently than God functions. 
right? And that's why when we talk about certain things about God to the rest of the world, it doesn't make sense. Because God is different than that. God is holy, set apart, he's sacred. And so when we talk about this, he says that you are following the course of the world. So you are following according to the world system. And the world system tells you that it's all about you. You do what makes you happy. You do what makes you satisfied. That, you, that, that anyone else competing for the same thing as you is an enemy of you immediately. And that you cast everyone out. That you push everyone aside that gets in your way. That the only people that are worth anything are the people that you care about and that are close to you. That your own tribe is the only people who are important. And so there's all these ways at which the world system was leading us. And not only that, not only were we following the course of the world, but he says you are following and listen. And this is where we have to understand. This is part of those requirements for resurrection. We have to understand. Not only were we following the course of the world that we saw, but it's an intentional leading. And this is, this is so hard for us to embrace and accept sometimes, especially in modern, the modern world and especially in modern Christian circles. It's, it's not something that's communicated a whole lot. But this leading that we were experiencing, that we maybe have experienced or are experiencing right now, is an intentional leading. And it says here, not only were you following the course of the world, just kind of the system that was laid out, but he says, you are following the prince of the power of the air. We recognize it doesn't say the king, right? But it says the prince. The king has ultimate authority. God's the king. But there is a source that is leading us away from God. Someone who does have some authority here. Someone who does want us to rebel. Someone that does want to lead us towards paths of selfishness. Towards paths that are focused on our own needs, our own desires, our own passions, our own abilities. And he calls him the prince of the power of the air. And so when we talk about the enemy in this way, we need to understand that he has some authority. He's the prince, he's not the king. But he has some authority within this realm to challenge and to lead and to guide God's creation. And so that leading away from God is an intentional leading. It's not by accident and it's not just by where we end up, but it's the enemy actively working in our lives. Listen, that same enemy, enemy is actively working in the lives of our children. Actively working in the lives of the world around us, within the systems of our world that are established, that are in opposition to God. This prince of the power of the air is navigating that space right now. He's navigating this space. He's leading within families. He's leading within relationships. He's leading, trying to lead away from God, away from what God desires, away from God, what, what God wants, ultimately because he knows, number one, that the most, the fullest satisfaction of what God can give us is only found in him and what he will do is he takes what we think we want what we think we desire what we think we need to have and he takes what God has made good and he perverts it into something lesser less fulfilling that ultimately doesn't satisfy a well that does run dry that we keep, have to keep finding new wells for when God is telling us I am the well that never runs dry you're looking for your value, your acceptance, your importance, your, your fulfillment in your relationship, your fulfillment as a parent, your fulfillment as a human being in all of these empty wells. And God keeps calling out and he says, I have it for you. 
I have the well that never runs dry. I have what you need for identity. I have what you need for value. I have what you need for importance. But that prince, that ruler in this realm, he says, hey, listen, I've, I've got better things for you over here. I mean, we see it in the Garden of Eden. What did the serpent say to, uh, to Eve? He said, hey, did God really tell you that? He's just trying to keep something from you. He's trying to keep you from experiencing the fullness of what you have here. And so he says that this leading, this leading, this direction is dictated other than by the leading of God. And when we talk about the course of the world, humanity's values and standards that are typically separate from God. And then he continues on in verse 3. And he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I love how when he says this, he's not, he's not limiting it to just who he's speaking to, right? Because a lot of times we would say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not that. I've never done that. I've never lived that. I wouldn't be that. I'm, I would make better decisions than that. I'm not going to do that. But man, Paul... Paul does a good job here in his language, and he says, listen, among whom we all once lived. Paul was a great preacher because Paul knew how to level the playing field. Paul knew how not to stand on a podium, stand on a, 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 a pillar above everyone and say, you once lived, right? You need to get this right. You need to fix this. No, no, no. Paul said, we all. We all have lived. All the rest of mankind. He's, he's bringing it all together. He's communicating it as if we understand we are all in this boat. We've either been there or you are there. Navigating these paths where the prince of the power of the air is leading you away from God. The fullest experience of life. The fullest experience of your marriage. The fullest experience of parenting. The fullest experience of what we're doing here is found in the holy God of the universe and Paul says, listen, among whom we all once lived. I love how Paul levels that playing field. And he says it's not exclusive of one part of humanity. It's not exclusive just to this type of person or this type of person. Listen, it's all of us. And he says, listen, there's, There's, not, there's no escaping the, rea the reality of our condition separate from God. Because he, he's very clear. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we would be able to acknowledge this. That, and he says the passions and the desires of the mind and the body. You know, separate from God. And even as a believer, we are drawn we are drawn towards these paths that satisfy ourselves, right? When he talks about passions, desires, and the mind, I mean, he's pretty much covered every realm at which we think and live and function. And separate from God, if we're driven by emotional or physical needs, man, we will be so limited in what we know and what we experience from God. But the beautiful thing is this, as we wrap up, in Psalm 1610, David writes, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So he tells us, listen, I'm not leaving you in that. That's the beautiful truth about what we celebrate today, church, is that 
despite the requirements of resurrection, which are that we are dead and that we were being led by something other than God prior to our life in Christ, prior to knowing who God is truly. And maybe even if you're living today in that, being led by something other than the holy God of the universe. No matter who you are or where you've been, God doesn't leave us in that. He offers us paths. He offers us a place at his table. And he says this in verse 4. He says, but God, the greatest, the greatest two words in the entire Bible, I believe, is whenever the Bible says, but God. Because typically he's telling us that we were here. We were dead, we were destitute, we were alone, we were destructive, we were falling to pieces, we were destined for nothing good but God. The God of the universe deciding to lend a hand towards broken humanity. And I say this all the time because I think it's worth saying the difference between the Christian faith and every other faith in the world, and you can quote me on this, every other religion in the world is the fact that our God is the only God that leans down to where we are. The God of every other religious faith in the world is its God inviting its people to come to where they are. Our God leans down into the dirt where we are. Our God comes into the grave where we are. Our God comes down to brokenness where we are. Our God came down and was nailed to a cross, bearing our sin and shame, experiencing the, the, the pain and the hurt and the disgust and the guilt and the shame that was meant for us, and he bore that on the cross for me and you. Our God isn't like any other God that any other faith would ever say or mention. The God of the Bible is the God that comes where we are. The God that's leaning into your life right now. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, and no matter even what future you think's ahead of you, the God of the Bible looks into your life and he says, this is where you are. This is where you are. This is who you are. But God. And so what does he say? One of the most powerful statements in the Bible. This indication of initiation of God's will and power in the life of broken humanity. And in Romans 9.16, Paul writes this, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so what does Paul say? He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us. And I love how he doesn't just say that the God of mercy. He says the God who is rich in mercy. Because a lot of us, and me even in my life, even here recently, in my life navigating, where I, I just think to myself, like, there's no way God has enough mercy for me like I, I need way more mercy than what God's got to give but what does Paul say Paul says he is rich in mercy that he has an excess of mercy to give that there's nothing that any of us can do or have done or will do that will be too far that the mercy of God can outstretch towards you and ring you back in that the mercy of God can't meet you where you are, that you can think that you've wandered too far out. Listen, my AT&T cell phone, cell phone service will only carry so far. 
right? You get going too far out in the woods or the wilderness, what happens? The connection starts to break and then it's lost and then you have no connection and you think to yourself, if you've been in a situation where you're in that place, think to yourself, what do I do now, right? I mean, we didn't know what life was like before cell phones. So we're like, how do I use my GPS? Like, how do I figure out where to go from here, right? God tells us that His mercy never loses connection. That His mercy is rich. That it's ever extending. That it's ever moving. That it's ever growing. That He's rich in mercy. And not only is He rich in mercy, but He has a great love, which He has loved us. I love that He says, where we, you know, for us, where we lack, He has excess. Where we lack, He has excess. What is the, and, and for us to remember this, why does He say mercy and love? Because what is the greatest weapon against the power and the effects of sin and shame in our lives? What's the greatest weapon against the power of sin and shame in our lives? The thing that tells us we're no good, the things that tells us we can't, the things that tells us that he doesn't want us, that we shouldn't go. What is the greatest weapon against those things? Mercy and love. That we would be reminded that God has forgiven us and that we remembered not only that he will love us, but what does it say? That's a past tense word. He loved us. He loved us while we were in the grave. He loved us when we were dead. He loved us before we were even born. He loved us before we were conceived. He has loved us before we've done a single thing for him. I love this care concern for the cure of our disease that has destined us for death. You know, he loved us. You know, and, and the thing that we need to know about this is we gave him no reason to love us. And, and a lot of people find that discouraging because of the world system. You, you do right, you get loved for it, right? And so we, we, we like the affirmation of that, that I've done something to earn his love. But we only love that when we're doing right. When we've done wrong, then we believe we're unlovable. Then we believe that there's, there's no place for me in it. We, then we believe that, that, that there's no space at which... I continue in this because I'm, I'm not good enough for it. But how does God combat that? How does God fix that? He says, no, 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 no. Yeah, you're doing wrong or you've done wrong and you're doing some right. But he says, listen, I loved you before you could even make a choice for yourself. I loved you before you took a breath of fresh air. I loved you before you did a single thing right. And church, I thank God for that. I thank God for that because... There are so many times in my life, even now, that if that wasn't the case, if I felt like I was spending my entire life running up a hill that I would never reach the top of, why try? I've lived that. I've lived that religious life where I lived my entire life believing that I would be lucky if I end up in hell. I mean, I just, I just knew I was going to end up in hell because I knew I couldn't do enough good. I knew that I couldn't check enough boxes. I knew that I couldn't earn it well enough. I just thought to myself, if God's got a spot at the table, he's likely going to give it up to somebody else because he's not going to save that spot for me. That's not the case. That's not the case. He says, listen, there's a spot at the table and it's just waiting. It's waiting for you. He says, I've loved you before you've loved me. I've loved you before you even thought about me. And I love this. In, in verse 5, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, despite the status of, our, status of our lives, he met us there. He didn't leave us. 
Church, He initiates, He instigates, He proliferates the process of resurrection in our lives. And and the thing about it is there's no doubt about our position. This isn't a question. We are absolutely dead. We were absolutely, as a believer this morning, you were absolutely dead in our trespasses and sin. And the God of the universe made a choice for our good. And and the thing about it is this, is that our current place doesn't disqualify His saving grace. That the grace of God, the mercy that He gives, the love that He loved us with, is there. It's there. And He tells us in verse 5 that He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Church, our resurrection was and can be a rescue. A rescue from spiritual death. And why is spiritual death all that important? Because spiritual death, number one, is us not living to the fullest extent of what God intends for us to live. There's this already but not yet aspect of it. That what God has wants to give us now, blessings and experience that we can have now. Now I'm not talking about riches and wealth and all that prosperity gospel stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about being a husband or wife, parenting, living in the world of the circle of influence you have and enjoying and experiencing this life of confidence, the hope that we talked about in this morning as we sang. That hope only comes through Christ. Hope beyond hurt, you know, a, a, a process beyond our pain. All those things are only found in Jesus. And so our God, church, is about resurrecting dead things and giving new life. And as a child of God, you have that, and I pray that you're living in it. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you you would not call yourself a Christian or a child of God this morning, not just by association, not just by creation, but if truly, like the Bible tells us, believed that Jesus came and died and rose again to reveal to us what? Remember, Jesus' resurrection was the most vital element of human history. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection revealed to us that he defeated mankind's greatest enemy. And what was mankind's greatest enemy? Death. What God did through Jesus Christ was to guarantee us that when our physical life ends, that there is something beyond it. And not only something beyond it just to exist, because there's something like that separate from God too, it's called hell in the Bible, but that there's a life beyond this where we can continue to experience it even to a deeper level, experience the joy of being with the Creator. And not just being with the Creator as a guest, but when the Bible says in verse 6, the last thing, the third thing this morning being the reason for the resurrection, the third thing being this, or the, the, the thing being this, that he has raised us up, in verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him. And who is him? Him is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ in the Trinity? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Where does the Son sit? The Son sits at the right hand of the Father. And so if we're sitting with him, where are we sitting? Not that we're little gods, but where are we sitting? We're not sitting at a place as guests. We're not out in the crowd. We're sitting at the place that the family sits. We're sitting in the place where those that have an inheritance sit. We're sitting at the place at which the blessings flow. 
We're sitting at the place at which the fatherly, fatherly love continues to pour out, the concern, the care, the love. So he tells us the already but not yet is that when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls, that we are with Christ at the right hand of God and that we can know that we have a confidence that we are a part of the family of God, that the blessings of the Father were poured out on the Son. And because of that, I am not sitting at the table as a guest, but I am sitting at the table as one who owns the table. That we sit in that confidence to know that the God of the universe looks at us with that much love, with that much care, with that much concern, that it's not that God is not seeing me because of me and my duties and my abilities, that I am with Christ, that I am in Christ, that it's not my name tag that I wear anymore, but it's Christ that's seen through me, that my name tag now says Christ Jesus. And that is so much hope for us because... It's not our good deeds that are... It's not us that has got, gained our admittance to the table, but it is Jesus that has gained that for us and that we celebrate that and that we live in that. And there's a reason why we are resurrected is to live in that. There's this already of our eternity that is sealed and then the not yet of Christ's continual work in our lives. And this is what we need to know. You know, the Bible says that faith without works is dead because even though works do not secure our salvation, works are evidence of our salvation pouring out from our lives. And listen, it's got to be different than just doing good because a lot of people who don't believe in Christ do good things. We talk about this all the time. But it's doing good things for for the sake of Christ, doing good things for the kingdom of God that point back to him, that don't point to me, that don't put me in the spotlight, that don't put me in the center of the universe, that don't celebrate me, but it celebrates Christ. And so he says, we don't sit with Christ yet, church, but we sit in Christ, made and raised, indicates a tense that are immediate and direct results of our salvation. And so then in verse 7 he says this, So that in the coming ages he might show his riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And so what he chooses to do, and this is our challenge, is that he chooses to use us to reveal his message, to lead others to the same riches he has offered us. And how does he do this? And I love that he uses this. In verse 7 he says, The riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. Because what's the significance of God's kindness? You know, kindness is kind of that external act, separate from obligation, you know. The purest form of kindness is choosing to do something without obligation. And so God has showed us kindness by offering us mercy and love and the grace that forgives us. And not only that, but then what he's given us, if you're a Christian here this morning, what he has given us is this message, he says, so that in the coming ages, so that in our future, he might show something. And he uses us to do that. And we have the opportunity to reveal that through what? Through his kindness. In Romans 2, 4, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and the patience? And he says, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to what? What is repentance? Understanding that we need something that we can't provide for ourselves. Understand that we have sin and trespasses that have instigated our spiritual death. We have things that are holding us back in the grave, holding us back in the coffin. 
And he says, understanding that he has offered us something. Church, God will never stop dealing with us on the basis of his grace. And verses 8 and 9 say, by, your, by grace you have been saved, not of your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because listen, if our uh, secured space and our salvation with Jesus was because of our own works, what would we do? We'd make sure everyone knew about it, and it would be us who gets the glory for it. But God says, I've offered you a salvation that is separate from your works. Which should be good news to us because our works aren't consistently good, right? I mean, unless you're just perfect people, I'm not always good. I struggle. I sin. I fall short. My, My good deeds aren't consistent. My mindset isn't always consistent. But the saving work of God through Jesus Christ is. And it secures us. And it seals us. And it promises us something beyond what we have within ourselves. It's not of your own work, your own skill, your own intellect, so that we could not boast of ourselves or lean on our own strength and ability. Not to take away from the fact that God in His infinite ability and wisdom chose to rescue broken humanity from its own problem. In Romans 3.28 it says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then the last thing, The reason for our resurrection is this, kind of building off of that. In verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. Church, God defeated our greatest enemy, death, so that we could truly live as he made us and carry on as we were created. I love that. He says that we are his workmanship. And when it says workmanship, it speaks of a work of art that carries the idea of a beautiful poem. And I don't know about you, but none of those things are ever made by accident, but they're created with intent. And not only are they created with intent, but he tells us that those things were created, the good works created for you, with you in mind, were created when? Beforehand. Before you took the proper steps, before you made the proper decisions, before you took the proper uh, work about it yourself. He said those things were prepared beforehand for you. 2 Timothy 1.9, he says, He who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Church, good works cannot produce salvation. But the subsequent results of and evidence of that, of God's work in us, is the work that comes from us. In the way that we raise our children, the way that we stand firm in our faith, and the way that we step, take steps of obedience. In Matthew 16, and, and we'll end here, but Matthew 16, 23 through 24, says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so when he's talking about laying aside and moving forward and denying ourselves, he's talking about denying our own self-interest for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Church, we are resurrected by His grace to carry our own cross, not the cross that required payment. We don't carry the cross that He carried. We carry our cross. And so what is that? Our cross is whatever may be ahead. Our cross may be whatever following through with self-denial looks like. 
Our cross is courage it takes and the endurance it takes that is instigated by Christ to live this life for His glory. Church, we don't carry the cross of, of our salvation. We carry the cross of our sanctification. Church, we are already in Christ. Now we carry to look more like Christ. The job that He's given us. The role that He's given us to play. So what is, what is the role that we have to live and to look more like Christ? Listen, it, it's, it's in our relationships. It's serving in the local church. It's leading our children despite what the cultural mandate may be. It's taking strong stances while still being kind and gentle towards an unbelieving world. It's leaning into the spaces where God has called us to, the spaces of influences that He has allowed us to have. That is us taking up our cross, not the cross of our salvation, but the cross of our sanctification. God molding us more into the image of Christ. We're already in Christ. Now we'll live this life to look more like Christ. And listen, we'll fail at that pretty regularly. But we keep carrying. We keep moving. We keep leading in that way. Church, the cross keeps us from depending on on ourselves. And as the, the team comes up, we're going to worship together as we end here this morning. But understanding that the resurrection means something for us. The resurrection means something for us. And ultimately, I hope that it can help us to know this. That it would encourage us to stop searching for our identity and passions and the desires of our flesh and our worldly experiences. But knowing that the God of the universe came and lived and died. And then rose again to defeat spiritual death. To know that we can live in this life right now. Experiencing the fullness of what God has for us. But not only that, but he's defeated physical death. So that we never have to live a moment or exist a moment separate from the eternal love of God. And that we find that in Christ Jesus. And so church, I just pray that as we sing and as we worship that we, we could acknowledge together that you where you are, that you would acknowledge your status before a holy God. And this isn't some ploy to trick you or, or some way to emotionally manipulate you, but to truly consider, truly consider who Christ is for you. Is Christ the Savior of your life? Is He the Lord of your life? Is it just something that we attest to on the weekends or something that we, we, we ascribe to around Easter and Christmas? Is it deeper than that? Because if it's not, then I'm, I'm telling you, only because for me in my life, every single day I have to constantly grasp towards Christ, leaning towards what He has, grabbing a hold of who He is, because I, I need it. And that's just not an expression of weakness, it's an acknowledgement of the reality of my humanity. I'm broken. I'm weak. And I want to be able to lead my family, the people I know, my children. I want to be able to lead them towards something so much stronger and bigger and more sustaining than me. And that's Christ. So I pray that you can know that. I pray that you can experience that. I pray that you can confidently share that with the people that you know. And if you don't know it, the Bible tells us that if we will believe, if we'll repent and acknowledge our need, if we'll believe in Christ and His work and what He wants to do, that we can find rescue and salvation and resurrection in Him now. And listen, be honest with yourself. Christian this morning, be honest with yourself. Are you truly experiencing and walking in the resurrection that Christ has called you to? The reason for your resurrection? And then 
If you're here and you would not say that you're a Christian, you have questions, doubts, fears, what is it? What has the prince of the vow of the air convinced you of? What has he lied to you about that God can clear up? Listen, Garen's here. He'll pray for you. There's, if there's someone else that you know here that, that you want to have a que- ask a question to or talk to or, 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 or seek advice from, or you have, have something going on that you would just like to have somebody lean in with you, then, then this is that moment. We're going to sing together. I encourage you to sing as we worship and celebrate what Christ has done. So stand with us this morning and bow your heads with us and let's, let's just pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for the truth and the reality of your word. God, I, I just I thank you for this time that you've given us just to worship your holy name. God, I pray that this morning that we could just worship you in such confidence and God, experience you on such a deeper level than maybe what we have even this morning. God, I just pray that you would just soften hearts and minds. God, let us just seek you and see you in a special way here today. Father God, we just love you. God, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name.